question, have you ever had to wait for something in your life? And I don't mean like waiting in a queue, I mean waiting a long time, months um, or even years. Um, Have you ever had to wait for something where you waited so long that you almost began to doubt that it might happen? Um, It's time to open the confessional a little bit. I hate waiting. I really don't like to wait. I'm an impatient waiter. Um, And I was thinking back through my life at the things that I've had to wait for. Um, I met my wife when we were 16. She wasn't my wife at the time. We were just friends. Um, We were 16 when we met the end of the 10th grade, and I knew pretty quickly that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. Um, But you can't get married at 16, or at least it probably wasn't the right thing for us. And so we waited five years until we're 21, and it felt like such a long time to wait. And we've been married 25 years now, and have kind of forgotten that waiting period. And there was another thing I remember waiting for, and that's kids. We have two kids, a 19-year-old and an 18-year-old. They're actually both next door doing kids' program. Charlotte, um, she's at college now, and Jamie, he's a a senior at Vintage High. Um, But I remember waiting for the day that they were born, and both of our kids went overdue. And so um, Charlotte, she was due, and then a day went over the due date, and then two days, and eventually they went two whole weeks before she was finally born. And it was the middle of summer, and you know, every time Joe moved, I was like, is that it? Are you in labor now? And she's like, I'm not in labor. Um, <laughs> Jamie also came two weeks late. Um, I imagine it was probably the longest two weeks of Joe's life, both times as well. Um, I thought it was long for me. Well, I guess in life we wait for a lot of things. Um, I was lucky that waiting to marry Joe, I I could see what was coming. And, you know, waiting for the babies to be born, there was a big bump. We knew it was going to happen. But what happens when the promise seems out of reach? What happens when you are waiting for something that seems like it may never happen? Uh, In our sermon series, we've been following the story of Abram. um, And it's a story all about waiting, at least this part of it. You see, God had made three promises to Abram. Um, He said he would bring him into this land. Uh, He would make Abram's family into a great nation. And he would bless all of the people of the whole world through Abram. But as we open up Genesis 16, 10 years have passed since God made that promise to Abram, uh, that original promise. And even after these 10 years, Abram still doesn't possess the land. He still has no offspring, no heir, and no child. So what do you do when the promise seems to be slipping away, a slipping out of reach, when you, when you can't see how your waiting will end? What do you do when God seems to have forgotten you? Uh, well, let's pray, and then we'll dig into this Bible passage. Um, our Heavenly Father, we are impatient creatures. Will you show us today that you see us and you hear us and that you will keep every one of your precious promises to us? Uh, help us to trust you in our season of waiting to the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, the biggest obstacle to God's plan was that Sarah couldn't have children. Um, How will Abraham be the father of a great nation uh, without an heir? Um, So as we said before, Abram, he was 75 years old when God first called him and made him this promise of land and nation and blessing. Sarah, his wife, she was 65. And uh, even then at 65, she'd been unable to have children. And now it's 10 years later, and none of them are getting any younger. He's 85, she's 75. Perhaps God had planned that Sarah would, uh, would be part of the promise. Uh, perhaps, sorry, perhaps God had never planned that Sarah would be part of the promise. Perhaps there was another way that God was planning 
to grow a nation out of Abram. In the last chapter, in chapter 15, we skipped over this one, but um, God had a meeting with Abram. Uh, He appeared to Abram, and Abram said to him, how is this going to work? He said, I've got a servant called Eliezer of Damascus. Is he going to be the one who will follow on the family line? But listen to what God said to him. Um, I'm just going to read this for you. It's from chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. Abram said to God, you have given me no children. A servant, so a servant in my household will be my heir. But then the word of the Lord came to him. He said, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Genesis 15, 3 to 4. And so Abram in this uh, chapter 15, a famous passage, Abram believes God. But to be doubly sure, God gives him this vision, this dream. Uh, God um, ratifies this promise by showing this symbolic picture of animals chopped in half. And God says, with these animals, this chopped in half image, I'm showing you that I'm deadly serious about my promise. Now, that's the backstory. Um, so it's not going to be Abram's servant. It's going to be his son who becomes the heir. And we're going to think about the three big characters in the story today, Sarah, Abram, and Hagar. That's how I'm uh, orienting the sermon. So Sarah's story. The chapter 16, it begins with this reminder that Sarah had borne Abram no children. Perhaps she was the problem. Maybe it was her problem. Perhaps she was the one, her infertility, that's what was preventing God's plans from being fulfilled. Perhaps God had not meant that the heir would uh, come from Sarah's body, just from Abram's body. And so Sarah, she looks to her servant Hagar, uh, her young Egyptian slave, and she, she thinks perhaps God meant for this woman to bear the heir. Perhaps she's the one who's meant to bear the son and, and be this long-awaited one who would bring this a blessing, so the great nation. It was custom in the ancient culture that a woman could use her maidservant like that as a surrogate to produce a legitimate heir if she was unable. There was no law against polygamy. And down the track, we'll see um, in Genesis, we'll see Jacob. He'll marry two sisters, Leah and Rachel. And then they'll have more children through their maidservants, Zilpah and Bilhah. And so at the surface level, there's nothing unlawful about what um, Sarah suggests. But if you think a little bit deeper, just a few chapters ago, Abram, he'd given Sarah to the king of of Egypt so that he wouldn't be killed. Um, He allowed his wife to be given sexually to another man, which I find kind of, I've written outrageous. It's morally questionable at best. I don't think it's a great idea. And now Sarah is giving her servant sexually to her husband, as if Hagar were mere property. And of course, at that time, that is how servants were treated. That's how slaves were treated. They thought about them as property, not people. Now, does any of this make it morally right? I think in our modern Western mind, it's a very confusing scenario. And I don't think it's, it doesn't doesn't work out well for them. So I don't think we're meant to say, oh, this is the perfect solution. Hagar has no choice, it appears, as well. And so for Sarah, the concern is building her family. Uh, It's not Hagar's welfare. And uh, look back at verse 2. Sarah blames God for keeping her from having children. And so she looks to build her family a different way. And even though Abram takes Hagar as his wife in verse 3, they're not this happy thruple. They're not a couple of three. They're not a happy family. There's a lot of resentment. Look at verse 4. Abram slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. 
And then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the, for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarah's plan to build a family has backfired. A child will be born, but the family is falling apart. Sarah's position as Abram's wife is undermined because Hagar's status as a servant has been elevated. She was given to Abram as a wife. And so she becomes Abram's second wife, and she becomes the mother of an heir. And Sarah strikes out at Abram. She blames him for everything. The whole scene sounds a lot like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, doesn't it? You know, Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband, and he took it. And Sarah takes her Egyptian slave, and she gives him to her husband, gives her to her husband, and he takes her. And then everything gets messed up. I think it's meant to remind us of that. Abram's story. What about him? What did Abram think about all of this? After all, God had made the promise to him, not once but twice, that he would have offspring from his own body, that he would become the father of nations. Perhaps his wife Sarah was correct. Perhaps God meant for him to have a child with the Egyptian girl, not with the wife of his youth. I'm, I'm not sure about that. And uh, for, the, for the men in the room, I think, what do you think about that? Um, if we look at the way the story is told, right from the beginning, Abram's wife Sarah was at his side, even before God made those promises to, to Abram. Uh, we learned before the promises, back in chapter 11, that Sarah was childless. Um, some of the other translations say barren, which is a horrible expression. But she was Abram's wife, well, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. So why would Abram expect his heir to come from anybody else except for his own wife? Especially after what happened in Egypt when Abram had jeopardized Sarah's safety, but God had restored Sarah to him. Do you remember? Um, God, uh, Abram had let Pharaoh take Sarah into his harem and God struck Pharaoh with plagues until Sarah was given back to Abram. Sarah is central to God's promises. But Abram seems to be quick to look somewhere else. When there was a famine in Canaan, when the land was barren, Abram looked to Egypt for its fertile soils. And now in his wife's season of barrenness, he looks again to Egypt for an heir. Married men, I think we need to pay close attention to what this story teaches us. Because I think there's probably a little bit of Abram in all of us. You know, when things aren't working out the way that you thought they would, don't go looking elsewhere. We mustn't go looking elsewhere. Instead, if you've been married, look to the one who's been at your side since the beginning. And remember the promises you made on your wedding day. Um, Abram frustrates me because he doesn't seem to fight for his marriage. In this section of the story anyway he's portrayed as this quite passive bystander and i think this is just chapter 16 but his wife offers him a slave girl and, and he sleeps with her and although he's heard god's voice his god's voice promise him offspring now he listens to his wife's voice in verse 2 rather than trusting in god's promise and then when the tension builds between the two women what does abram do well he tells his wife in verse 6 well your slave is in your hands do with her whatever you think is best Abram stands by passively while Sarah mistreats Hagar. What do you make of this? I mean, this is a family in crisis, isn't it? This is a family in trouble. Um, frankly, I think it's a man who doesn't seem to be standing up for what is good and what is right. And the Old Testament laws um, uphold the virtue of marriage in a way that Abram seems to have forgotten in this troubled season. 
Um, the idea that a husband and wife are one flesh. In the New Testament, Paul says that a husband is to love his wife as he loves his own body. And um, the mystery of marriage, of course, in Ephesians 5 is that Jesus laid down his life for the church and a husband ought to lay down his life for his wife. There is a very self-sacrificial thing that the Bible teaches us about marriage. And so I think the challenge of this chapter for men is that we need to examine ourselves and to see if we've fallen into any of these kinds of behaviors. Um, I know that Jesus wasn't married, but in Jesus, we see a model of love and care and protectiveness for women. Uh, He's protective and restorative and he's compassionate. And I think that's where the gospel should lead us um, in all of our relationships, whether it's our wife or our children or our friends. I think Jesus teaches us to do better than Abram. Ladies, um, I think we should say something about Sarah's behavior. And so I want to say this extremely carefully. I think it might have been very difficult to be married to Abram. I think he could have been a difficult man. Perhaps all of their married life, Abram had been resentful of Sarah's inability to have kids. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. But perhaps Abram couldn't resist the chance to remind Sarah whose fault it was that they were childless. The nasty comment when she was feeling down, the cheap shot, twisting the knife in the opening wound. I'm not sure. I mean, perhaps Abram was the model of a supportive husband, except for when he gave his wife away to a foreign king. And then later on, he did it again. It would be easy to resent your husband for that kind of thing. It would be almost impossible to rebuild trust after that kind of betrayal. It will be easy to keep reminding him of his failure and to keep blaming him, to belittle him, to ignore him. It will be easy to focus on building the family, the kids anyway, without making the effort to reconcile with your husband properly. Ladies, does that sound at all like you? I hope I'm miles off the mark. But if you notice even the smallest resemblance in your behavior to Sarah's, then this passage might be speaking to you today. God might be speaking to you today and leading you to do better as you follow the image of Jesus or the example of Jesus in all things. Well, that's enough of that for now. Let's think about Hagar, our last character. Put yourself in Hagar's shoes. Um, she is perhaps the innocent one in all of this. Um, she's an Egyptian slave. She was probably given to Sarai when, uh, when uh, given to her by the Egyptian pharaoh when Sarah had been sent away from her in Egypt. Now, slaves, they do what they're told. They didn't have rights in that society. They were like property for the master to do with as they pleased or as he or she pleased. When Hagar was given to Abram, he took her as his wife, not just his concubine. And so Hagar's place in the world went up a notch. She was carrying the child that her mistress couldn't have. Perhaps she'd become Abram's favorite. We don't know. And so Hagar began to look down on the women who owned her. In verse 4, it says, She despised her mistress. But Sarah, she wouldn't be dethroned as the matriarch. As she mistreated Hagar, she put her in her place, while Abram did nothing about it. And so Hagar, frightened and pregnant, flees into the desert. Hagar's story actually takes up more than half of the chapter, and I'm not going to say very much about it. But I do want to say this. Um, Even though Hagar is perhaps the least important character in this story, God treats her with a dignity that she never received as the, as the slave of, Hagar, of Abram and Sarai. See, God himself comes to Hagar 
at the spring of Shur, and he says, uh, it says the angel of the Lord came to, came, comes to her uh, in verse 7, 9, and 11. But when you look at verse 13, you can actually see that she knows it's the Lord who is speaking to her. And when the Lord comes to Hagar, he blesses her far beyond what her importance in the story would suggest she deserves. To this little slave girl from Egypt, God promises that she will have more descendants than she can count. God gives Hagar a promise pretty similar to the promise he gave to Abram. She will be the mother of a great nation. Her son Ishmael will be the firstborn of the Arab peoples. And that's the historical side of this promise to Hagar, which is accepted in Jewish and Christian and Islamic tradition. But there's more to it than the interesting history. This is the story of God stepping into the lives of the little people, stepping into the lives of people like you and me. In this story, God tells us that he hears of our misery. That's what Ishmael's name means. It means misery. But it could be your name or my name. You might have been suffering loss or affliction or childness, a childlessness or suffering in a terrible marriage for years. But God has heard your misery. You might be like Hagar. You might be lost and alone and crying in the desert, but God has heard of your misery. Look at what Hagar says to God in verse 13. She says, you are the God who sees me. Hagar was right. We have a God who sees us. We have a God who sees us and he hears us and he's ready to step into our lives to deal with our misery. No matter how small we feel, no matter how unimportant we may look, God has already stepped into this world in the person of Jesus Christ to deal with the messes that we make of our lives, to deal with the injustices that affect us, and to show that God cares deeply for each and every one of us. God is with us, and God is for us. And we need to be reminded of that because as humans, we are impatient creatures. We're impatient creatures. We wait through the difficult seasons of life, and sometimes the waiting is so hard that we're tempted to give up. Brothers and sisters, God is bringing about the promises to Abram even today. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we're recipients of the promise. God doesn't promise us land and nation and blessing in the same way that he promised it to Abram. Actually, his promise to us is even better. You see, we live at the other end of the promise to Abram. We live in the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the whole world through Abram's family. See, through faith in Jesus, we are adopted into a new family, the church in this lifetime. And in the life to come, it'll be the family of all of God's people who are the descendants of Abram by faith, the great nation of God's people forever and ever. Through faith in Jesus, we'll be brought into the true land of God's promise, the new heavens and the new earth where we'll live with God forever. And through faith in Jesus, we'll receive blessings far beyond anything we could imagine, far beyond anything we deserve. You see, the world, I think, has sold us short on what blessing means. See, blessing is often understood or misunderstood as financial success. That's the prosperity gospel. Or having family, or having children, or having good health. That's often what we think is blessing. But life doesn't always turn out like that. Does that mean that you are cursed by God? Well, no, I don't think so. I think it means you haven't understood what real blessing is. See, real blessing is what we receive when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1, God tells us that in Jesus, we've received every spiritual blessing. 
in the heavenly realms. We've been adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. We've been redeemed through Jesus' blood. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been given an understanding of God's will for our lives. We've been given the Holy Spirit like a down payment or a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance on the day that Jesus returns. I began this morning by asking a question. What do you do when the promise seems to be slipping away? When you can't see how your waiting will ever come to an end? What do you do when God seems to have forgotten you? We've seen this morning that God has not forgotten us and that our waiting will come to an end when Jesus returns, if not sooner. So brothers and sisters, take heart and trust in the God who sees you. Will we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not forgotten us. We thank you that you see us in all of our miseries, in all of our waiting. We pray, Father, you would sustain us as we wait, especially for those who are uh, troubled at this time. We do pray for all of those around the world, particularly in the Ukraine, who are wondering when it will end. Father, we bring all of these things to you, trusting in your son Jesus, that you are the sovereign Lord over all. We thank you for all your promises to us in Jesus. Amen.